let me start off this message by just asking really quickly a, a question. Um, how many of you have ever had a conflict in relationships? <laughs> yeah, welcome to being a human being, right? Um, that's just par for the course. If you've ever had a conflict in relationships, then yes, you are a human being. Um, if you've ever had a conflict in your marriage, then yes, you are definitely married. Um, it is part and parcel to being one, uh, to being together as a couple. Conflicts are just a reality. You have two sinners who are trying to imperfectly love each other perfectly, and that's a recipe for disaster. Conflict is inevitable in any relationship, but specifically in marriage. Two people living together, trying to make it work. It's inevitable. It's a reality. Thankfully for Andrea and I, we've never, ever had a conflict. Um, clearly, that is a lie. Okay, so here's what we want to do. We've been going through the Song of Solomon. We've been talking about how God has really guided this couple together. We've looked at their dating. We've looked at their courtship. We've looked at how they've protected their, their relationship. But today, after the honeymoon, we're actually going to see them get into a little bit of a conflict. And for us, it's going to be, once again, a guide for how to overcome conflict in our marriage, in our relationships. So if you have a Bible, whether it's a digital or physical copy, go ahead and flip or swipe or tap your way to Song of Solomon chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 2 to the end of the chapter, even into the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. So Song of Solomon 5. As you kind of find your way there, I just want to kind of recap where we've been a little bit over the last few weeks. We've been looking at these interactions, and last week, as I mentioned, we looked at the honeymoon. Uh, we looked at them engaging, and we found five ways, or the five Bs, of making great love, or making love great again. And this week, we, intera we interact with them having a little bit of a conflict. It's a similar scenario but it is a conflict nonetheless. So if you found your place in Song of Solomon chapter 5, if you are able to, I'm going to ask you to stand alongside of me, if you're able, to stand alongside of me as I read God's word for us. If you are a guest at Grace, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. We believe it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's literally the word of God. And it's meant for building us up, for correcting us, it's meant for our full life of faith and living. So Song of Solomon chapter 5. Here's what we read. The bride says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you would thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000, 
His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon choices the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my best friend. O daughters of Jerusalem, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we jump into this passage, would you please bow for a word of prayer with me. Father, we come before you. Father, you know, you know, and I know that I sin, that I fall short often of your glory. And yet, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that you are my righteousness. I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would exalt yourself among us, that we would see you as our perfect, spotless, incredibly, unbelievably amazing groom who would come to save us. Spirit, I pray that you would fill and empower me, that I would speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word for the accomplishment of your will, for the encouragement of this body and the advancement of your kingdom. Spirit, I pray that you would convict those who need conviction and you would comfort those who need comfort. Lord, we pray that all of us would see the brilliance of the gospel as it's laid out. Would you help us, Lord, to overcome conflict? Thank you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your mighty name. And all God's people said... So this morning, we're going to look at eight tactics to overcome conflict in marriage. Eight tactics. When you're getting into a battle, when you're getting into a fight, you need to know how to fight fair. What are the rules of engagement? And how can you go about actually overcoming this conflict in your relationship, in your marriage? The goal, again, in marriage is for oneness, for us to pursue oneness together. Jesus came that he might give us life. He came that he might give us an abundant life. And in our marriage, the objective and the goal that we're working towards is oneness. Any conflict is trying to disrupt that oneness. And so how do we engage one another? How do we overcome the struggle, the fight? How do we do that? Tactic number one, understand the conflict. Understand the conflict. Now, a few weeks ago, we actually looked at a very similar passage. For those of you who've been with us over the last few weeks, this would have been reminiscent to you. There was a ch chapter three, we looked at, uh, there was a separation. We talked about longing. We talked about longing in marriage, longing in singleness. And we talked about how the separation caused fear and anxiety, and it was a dreamlike state. And here again, we have her starting off by saying, I slept and my heart was awake. I slept and my heart was awake. So here, again, commentators are wrestling through this. Is this reality or is it a dream? Yes, it's, it's a real dream. She's entering into a place where she is seeking. And so what we have to understand is while there are parallels, there are significant differences. This does not end in a great spot in, the first, in her dream. Whereas the last one, she finds her husband as she's dreaming and looking and searching for him. Here, again, we're seeking, but we're not exactly finding. So what is the conflict 
What is the conflict? We have to understand the conflict in this passage, and we also have to understand the conflicts in our own lives. The conflict that she is actually engaged in is actually, get this, get ready for it. Guys, do not say amen, all right? It's her fault. Don't say amen. So here's, you can laugh at that. Here's what's going on. She says, I was sleeping, and then I heard a sound. It says, my beloved is knocking. Okay, so in this culture and in this context, King Solomon would have had a bedchamber. The Shulamite, his, his wife, would have had a bedchamber, the king's chamber and the queen's chamber. He sneaks out after everybody's gone, and he tiptoes over to her chamber, knocks on the door. He's knocking on the door. She's not answering. He's in the courtyard. It's cold outside. The sun has set. Dew starts to set in. This is a desert area. This is a desert area. The dew starts to set in. He's getting drenched and soaked. He keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. She's not answering. And then finally when she answers, she says, come in. I'm so ready for you. I can't wait until you open up the latch and come in my room. This is going to be fantastic. No, she doesn't. Look what she says. She says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? She's saying, get a grip. This is not happening tonight. Dude, get off me. Don't touch me. I don't want it. I can't have it. No. Now, thankfully, <laughs> this never happens in marriage. <laughs> it's okay to laugh. <laughs> this is a real situation. He's knocking expectantly. And he's using beautiful language. Oh, my dove. He's using all this like flowery language. Oh, my sister. Now, really quick on that note. Multiple times throughout the Song of Solomon, he says, my love, my sister. Now, <laughs> for us, that's a little bit of like, maybe we'll just let that go. Listen, what he's talking about, right, is not some Kentucky loving, okay? <laughs> he's talking about the permanency of relationship. As permanent as a sister is in our life, as a sibling would be, he's talking about the permanency of relationship. So the term of endearment, the term of affection he's using for us might be bizarre, but again, it's grounding this relationship in permanency. My love, my sister, my dove, my perfect one. And what happens? He explains, I'm not doing great out here. I'd love to come in where it's warm and where you're so soft and cuddly, and I love that. She says, get out of here. Get out of here. Don't touch me. What causes conflicts? Conflicts all arise from selfishness. They all arise from some selfish intent. There, there is within us, whether it's whatever the conflict is, at the root of it, there is a breaking within us. It touches on pride and selfishness. There's something that's happening here, and she's being selfish. Okay? James 4 tells us what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Within each of us, there is an internal struggle and conflict. We want, we don't get. And here, she wants to go to bed. And he wants to tend the garden, <laughs> right? She's not interested. She tells him, go away. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You fight and you quarrel. What, there's a selfishness. There's a selfishness that immediately enters in. And think about this. We just looked at their honeymoon. We're one day in. We're one day into the marriage, right? And they're already having a fight. One day in. 
if you've had conflict in your relationship, this is exactly the kind of interaction that you can imagine. One day in, conflict enters in. He wants to go into her chamber. He wants to enjoy what God has given them in their relationship and intimacy with one another, one another, and yet they're on different pages. Understanding the conflict is, first of all, understanding this internal mechanism within ourselves to say, yes, I'm being selfish. There, there's something within me that is resisting, that's withholding. You've got to get on the same page. You've got to actually understand what the conflict is all about. I have seen so many couples, and I've counseled so many couples, where when I actually help them just kind of clarify the message, there's a lot of smoke, but when we can clear the smoke, we actually see where the ember is burning. And oftentimes, it's these little embers. It's not these massive raging fires that we have to deal with, that we can actually put out together. What is the conflict, and how is it working? Um, my wife is a wonderful cook. Wonderful cook. Although, maybe not always. When we first got married, she, she was an amazing baker. Like cookies for days, right? Unbelievable. But one day, I came home from studying while in seminary, working part-time. I was starving. I was like hangry, right? You ever been so hungry that you're like angry? You know, everything is putting you on edge. It's like, hey, babe, hey. <laughs> so we sit down to eat. And I'm eating these tacos, and I'm like, hmm, these tacos taste good, but they taste interesting. And I look over, and she's got, like, this smile on her face. And I was like, what kind of tacos are these? She's like, they're cauliflower tacos. <laughs> I was like, oh, hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. She's like, I decided we're going to have meatless Mondays. And I was like, what's next, communism? Like, what is this? <laughs> and so she decides that we're going to do this, right? We end, up, we end up having a conversation about it, right? She's like, I'm just trying to keep you alive. I'm like, I'm just trying to keep my taste buds satisfied. You know what I mean? Like, cauliflower. God would not want us to eat meat, right? He would not want us. If he didn't want us to eat meat, he wouldn't have made it taste so good. You know what I mean? Can I get an amen? amen? Amen, right? But in that conflict, we had to kind of iron out. We were just on different pages. We we're on different pages, right? I needed to come a little bit her way and, and, okay, I can understand how you're trying to, like, help me eat healthier, you know, not just smashing bags of Doritos all the time. Thank you, my love, <laughs> right? My sister, my bride, right? <laughs> but we had to kind of get on the same page. You have to boil down and isolate what the conflict is actually about. And when you actually isolate what the conflict is about, then you can actually get, you can get on the other side of it. You can overcome it. If you don't isolate what the conflict is about, you're never going to be able to address it. You're never going to be able to overcome it. You've got to actually discuss it, talk about it. And in order to do that, you've got to isolate and understand what it is. He, again, is wanting to come into the garden. She is wanting him to stay out of the garden. There's a conflict. She immediately gets upset. The language that she uses, I've already put off my garment. The garment here she's talking about would have been this kind of wedding gown type of garment, meaning she's specifically saying, I'm not interested in being intimate. She says, I've already bathed my, my feet. How could I soil them? I'm already clean. I'm not about to get all like that with you, right? But she's only thinking about herself in this moment. The first tactic in overcoming conflict 
is to actually understand the conflict. That's what's going on here. Tactic number two, you got to remember your differences. Look at verse four. She says, my beloved put his hand to the latch, and then my heart was thrilled within me. Okay, wait a second here. What's going on? He's still pursuing her, even though she's already rejected him and said, beat it, buddy. It says that he reaches for the latch, and she heard him opening the latch, and it says that she started to get excited. And what happens? It says, she arose to open to my beloved. Again, we're talking specifically about intimacy here. He says, open to me, my sister. She says, I arose to open to my love. Later on, she says, I opened to my beloved. She's talking about how she's gearing up and getting ready. She's actually getting excited, okay? She says, she approaches. Her hands were dripping with myrrh, fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. She goes to the door. He's knocking. He's knocking. She says, get out. All of a sudden, she's like, you know what? Maybe I am kind of interested. Let me get my garment, you know? She walks over to the door, and she's thinking, okay, now I'm excited. Now I'm ready to see you. This is going to be fun. She goes to open the door, and what happens? It says, verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. He was gone. Oh, <laughs> missed the moment. <laughs> she says, I sought him, but I found him. I called and gave no answer. He gave no answer. Conflict. Two different pages. He's pursuing, rejecting. Pursues again, rejected again. You have to remember your differences, okay? There are differences between men and women. Listen, I know it's controversial to say in 2024, men and women are still different. <laughs> They're still different. They're not the same, okay? Men and women are different. She's not interested, and then she's interested. He's like, hey, babe, what's up? And she's like, stop it, don't touch me, leave me alone. I'm already sleeping, get out of my room. And then all of a sudden, she changes her mind. Now, no woman ever in the history of all the world has ever changed their mind. <laughs> it's okay to laugh at that. You gotta get permission, you know? It's okay to laugh, right? The old saying goes, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, right? It's, there's a reason. God created us uniquely and wonderfully different. And some of those differences are in how we interact with each other in conflict. He's, he is clearly wanting her. She is clearly not wanting him. She runs to the open the door because she is wanting him. And all of a sudden, this communication, this miscommunication leads to him running away. He's like, well, forget it, right? Ladies, I've been harping on the dudes throughout this entire series about how Solomon presents to us an example to be emulated. I've been harping on them about how they need to step up, how they need to engage, how they need to pursue, how they need to be affectionate and gentle and sensitive and all of that. But here's what I can tell you right now. Your husband, your dude, can never and will never develop telepathic abilities to read your mind. They won't. They just won't. They will never be able to read your mind you have to actually speak to them. I don't remember, how many of you have ever, like, remember the movie Hitch from, like, early 2000s? Loved it. You want to know why it was so popular? Because it was true. The dude couldn't get a girl because he didn't know how women think. So he had an ally who actually helped him out, helped him to prep himself and engage and think about how women should be pursued. He was helping, and that's why it was so popular, because it's true. Guys, we can't read their minds. We know that. Gals, your husband cannot read your mind. If you're playing hard to get, then you, when you don't get got, don't get mad. 
Here's what I have found in the counseling that I'm doing. Gals, unfortunately, oftentimes you don't realize how, how diminishing it can be to physically reject your husband over and over and over and over. I have seen way too many godly men who have been gutted and undercut and undermined by their bride simply because she physically rejects them over and over and over and over. They give up pursuit. They give up pursuit. Never underestimate the ability and the power you have that when you physically reject your husband to actually cause him to believe he, he thinks he's lesser than he actually is. It's not only understanding your differences as men and women that is important to overcoming conflict, but it's also understanding your family of origin and how you engage in conflict. How you engage in conflict. That a guy in between who's a counselor in between services who came up to me, and he calls it foo fighting, right? Family of origin, foo fighting. He said, this is what I see all the time. If you are not aware of how you had an example of how conflict works, Within the, merit, within the household you grew up in, if you're not aware of it, you don't see it, you can never actually adjust or tweak anything in alignment to God's word. You're just going to be living out of what you've seen. You, you, typically, you typically end up emulating what you've seen an example of. Whatever's exemplified in front of you, you end up emulating. That's what happens. So if you don't analyze how it was that you interacted in your household, you may end up recreating the same exact elements in a relationship that you may have hated growing up in underneath it. How many times have I heard husbands and wives be like, man, I hated these elements about my dad. I hated these elements about my mom. I swore I'd never be this way, and I'm finding myself being exactly the same way. If you don't ever take time to analyze your family of origin and how they interacted in conflict, the marriage example you had in front of you, that's a difference in how you engage in one another that can cause that conflict to become more erosive in your relationship and more toxic in your relationship that drives a wedge between you and your husband or you and your wife. In my household growing up, we would argue each other into oblivion, right? There's a verse in the Bible that says, let us reason together. And we took that and ran with it. It was like, oh, we're going to reason together, all right. My dad would oftentimes be like a referee in a wrestling match. Go. You won, right? It was constantly, all right, here's the points. I'm going to lay it out. We're going we're gonna to get in an argument right now. My wife comes from a very Dutch household. Very, very Dutch. Oftentimes, there were conflicts that needed to be addressed. and We just engaged in those things differently. Oftentimes, those things might get a little bit swept under the rug. So for me, I like to pursue and I like to have it out. She, a little bit recoiled, so I would pursue and try and pry. And she'd be like, what are you doing? The ways that we interact growing up with conflict can help us if we remember those differences to actually overcome. If we acknowledge that we all have habits and patterns that we've received from the households we've grown up in that may not have been great. It gives us the ability to call that out, to submit that to Christ, and to actually pursue and love one another well and engage in conflict well. Your family of origin is a difference between you and your wife Hopefully, <laughs> you'll get that one on the way home. The question you got to ask is, how did my mom and dad fight? How did they engage in conflict? Would they fight and would they yell? Would they give each other the cold shoulder? 
Would they ignore problems and sweep stuff under the rug? Would they bottle stuff up? Did they have a long fuse or a short fuse? All of these things go into the examples we had. And if we aren't aware of that and we don't remember our differences, the way that we engage in conflict will often just emulate what we saw. So tactic number two, remember that you're different. You're different. You're men and women, and you didn't grow up the same way. So remember those. Number three, be honest about the conflict. Look at verse six. It says, when she got to the door, she opened it up, and her beloved had turned and gone. And then it says this, my soul failed me when he spoke. She says, I messed up. I'm super disappointed. She sees her selfishness in this moment. My heart failed me when he spoke. When he was speaking to me, my heart was the issue. My soul was the problem. She recognizes what her status was at this time. She recognizes it in that moment. Some of us are simply not honest with the ways that other people have hurt us in our relationships. We're not honest with ourselves about it. One of the things I've realized not only in counseling, but even in my own life, is that if somebody actually hurts me or hurts you in your relationship, you can actually have a tendency to diminish it. And if you diminish it, you won't ever deal with it. You'll never deal with it. So it, 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 she realizes that she's, she's, her heart has been a problem. Sometimes we know that something shouldn't bug us or bother us, but if it does and we don't acknowledge it, then we're going to fail to deal with it. If you deny it, you'll fail to deal with it. And I've seen this over and over and over again. This is a Matthew 18 situation. Jesus describes to his disciples what happens and what you're supposed to do if somebody sins against you. Matthew 18, 15, what does he say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We put this in a marital context. If your spouse sins against you, go and tell them. Don't deny it because you'll fail to deal with it. And once you begin stuffing things down that frustrate you, that annoy you, that anger you, if you do not deal with it in a truthful, loving, and gentle way, it will begin to erode, and it will drive a wedge over time. What I've often seen is this Bible verse interpreted in our brains in another way. So let me read that for you. Here's how often we'll deal with this. If your spouse sins against you, pretend it didn't offend you or hurt you, and ignore your relational issues, then you will be blessed. This is the extremely stupid version. And yet this is what I see consistently happening in marriages. If you're not honest with yourself about the way that you're being treated or something that is frustrating you or annoying you in your relationship, you're going to begin to bottle it up and it'll fester and it'll grow. You got to be honest about the way that you're feeling. I remember watching, uh, there was a video that came out of an anchor woman, and she was, it was the first day of school, and she's interviewing kids that are on their way to school, and there's this kid, he comes walking up, he's wearing his backpack, he's so excited to go to school, and she gets down on the knee, and she says, hey, buddy, are you excited to go to school? And he says, yeah. And she's like, are you going to miss your mom? And he's like, no. And then he just starts bawling. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to miss my mom. And it was so cute and so sweet. Why? Because he was being honest. He's going to miss his mom, and that's so sweet. But he was being honest in front of a camera, and it goes all over the news. And here's the thing. What was sweet about it is that he actually acknowledged that he, he had something that he was going to miss. 
If you don't have the ability to be honest about something in your relationship that's going wrong or that's going on, that's frustrating you, or something that's actually sinful against you, if you don't address it, you will only allow that to continue to fester and grow. There was a kid, his name was Fred Booth. He got a splinter. He gets a splinter. He doesn't deal with the splinter. The wound gets infected. His hand gets infected. The infection went to his bloodstream, and he died two weeks later. It's an extreme example of something that I see consistently happening in marriages. I have had people that I have counseled who have had minor grievances that lead to them nearly wanting to be separated or even divorced because that minor grievance was never dealt with and addressed in a biblical way. It was a minor grievance and a minor offense. And oftentimes it's those small things that can just drive a wedge over time. I'm talking about five years of just languishing in marriage. 11 years, 17, 27 years of marriage. Just languishing. You may think that you are honoring God's covenant by simply being together, but you are allowing for so much sin to drive a wedge in between you. And the, the point is, she's willing to acknowledge what's going on in her heart, that my heart is actually wrong. And until that actually changes, until we can actually be honest about the conflict, about the things that have hurt us, we are going to continue to struggle in our marriages. Tactic number four. He gives a cool-down period. She says, I sought him, but I didn't find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. This is immediately after she runs to the door. She's calling for him, looking for him, calling for him, looking for him, can't find him anywhere. I can tell you right now, as a guy, one day into marriage, highly anticipating and very expectant about going to your bride's chamber, getting shut down and turned away, it's going to cause a little bit of frustration. He leaves. We know physiologically that it takes about 18 to 20 minutes for us to simply chill out and cool down. Sometimes if there's a conflict, you need to take a, take a walk around the block, leave your phone unplug, just chill out, and that's what he's doing in this moment. He's just walking away from the conflict. I just can't deal with this right now. If you would imagine being him in this moment, you can imagine that he was expectant and excited, and immediately he shut down. So he steps away. She's looking for him, but he's not there. Sometimes in our relationships, if there are frustrations and points of anger, it's best to just simply step away. And here's, here's the thing. I want, I want to once again challenge the ladies in the room, the wives in the room, with recognizing that your ability, once again, to physically reject your husband can cause distance and resentment and hurt that festers over time. And here's what Solomon writes multiple times in the book of Proverbs. He says, it's better to live... It's better for a husband to live on a street corner than with a quarrelsome or contentious wife. That is a nagging wife. If you're a guest, it's been nice having you this morning at Grace. <laughs> I'm not going to make apologies for the word of God. I won't. Solomon says that for husbands who have contentious and quarrelsome wives, it's better for them to live out on a street corner or to live in a desert. He also says that, that trying to stop a quarrelsome wife is like trying to stop the wind, and it's like having a leaky roof where the water just drips on your head over and over and over and over and over. 
Again, I have been holding the men to account of the word of God consistently throughout this series. But I am appealing to you. And I don't want to hear you, have me hear you like this is just heavy-handed. I want to come alongside of you as your brother in Christ and just submit to you that the way that you're interacting with your husband in conflict may not be honoring to your king. It may not be honoring to your king. Jesus has made his word very clear for us in how we're supposed to interact with one another. And I have dealt with many men who are failing in their leadership. And yet it's never just one-sided. Men, if there's frustration, take a walk. Ladies, it's not right for you to tell them to take a hike. Tactic number five, allow conviction to lead to correction. Look at verse seven. It says, the watchmen found me, so they went about in the city, and they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of those walls. Now, I struggled with this because I was like, what on earth is going on? Number one, This isn't a physical reality. Again, this is a dream that she is recounting. This is an interaction that she's recounting. Two times do we see these watchmen of the city walls interact. Chapter 3 and here in chapter 5. What is the function of the watchmen in these passages? I believe that this functions as the Holy Spirit working in the relationship. In chapter 3, the watchmen show up. And as she runs about the street in longing, seeking her mate. We talked about longing and desire. We talked about that. And they actually shelter and protect her in a city. And then they guide and lead her. And she ends up finding her spouse. The Holy Spirit functions in our lives to lead us to those who God desires us to marry. There's a lie from Satan that I just want to absolutely deal with right now. There are married couples in here who right now in your mind, you believe that you didn't marry the right person. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That's from Satan. That's not from Jesus. If you stood at the altar and you made a covenant, that's who God had for you. That's exactly who he had for you. The spirit in chapter 3 in the watchman guides and leads her to finding her spouse. Here, the spirit, these watchmen, don't guide and lead. They chastise and correct. This is, an, this is a function of correction. She's, she already, we already saw her selfishness in rejecting her husband. And then immediately we saw that her heart, her soul failed her. She knew her heart was an issue. And then we immediately after that see these watchmen come in and they, they bruise. This bruising is actually the kind of correction that we see found in the book of Hebrews. Where we read that God loves his children so he corrects us. He will discipline us. So that we actually look more like him. Galatians 5.17 says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. There are times... Both guys and gals, there are times when your flesh is going to want to get the better of you. And then it goes on to say the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You may not feel like treating your spouse well in a conflict. But the spirit will come in and bring conviction. But you must submit to the conviction of the spirit and allow that conviction to correct you. If we are a people who are led by the Spirit of God, then we should be a people that are continually corrected by the Spirit of God. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, then his function is to refine you. Conviction is the carving tool that God uses through the work of the Holy Spirit to shape all of us into the image of the Son. And that's exactly what we see these watchmen doing here. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because... 
we see immediately what happens afterwards. She goes and talks to her friends. They start trying to say bad stuff, and then she defends her husband, okay? So here's how we know that there's a change of trajectory in her heart, that this conviction of the Spirit led to a correction in her actions. The sixth tactic that we see is that we need to be aware of bad counsel. Beware of bad counsel. She says in the end of verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I'm sick with love. If we think about the storyline and, and what Solomon is crafting and writing to us, what the Spirit is leading us in, there's this conflict. They have an interaction. She realizes she was wrong. She can't find him anywhere. And so she runs to her friends and she says, can you help me find him? And you know what her friends say? Listen to what they say. What is your beloved more than another beloved? And what is your beloved more than another beloved? They, these are not... These are not questions. These are rhetorical questions that are meant to be statements. What's so good about your husband? What's so good about him? Why should we help you find him? Why are you appealing to us to help you find him? Why would we do that? Gals, guys, it's very easy to get your friends and your family riled up against your spouse. But, but I need you to remember that you're not you anymore once you get married. There is no I in me, there is an us and a we. This gal speaks to them saying, have you seen my husband? She tells them about the conflict and what do they do? They immediately take her side. Well, what's so special about him? Ugh, men. I remember Little Rascals from the 90s. There was a rerun back in the 90s. Anybody remember Little Rascals, right? Um, <laughs> I remember there's a scene in there that I just love and this is what I see depicted exactly here. There's a scene where Darla and Alfalfa are fighting. And they go back to their respective, one, Darla's at her tea party and she's talking about Alfalfa and how terrible he is. And then Alfalfa's bad-mouthing Darla and how terrible she is. And it gets to a place where there's like this cut scene. And all the girls are like, boys, eh. And all the girls are like, boys or girls, eh. And they both are looking at each other and like, ah, girls and boys both hating each other. Do you remember what the name of the club was? The He-Man Woman Haters Club. <laughs> right? Now, I'm not, I'm not sitting here and being like, that's good and godly. No, it's terrible, but it illustrates what can happen. That if you have a conflict in your marriage, you're supposed to go work it out with your spouse. And I can tell you right now, if my daughter comes to me one day and she's talking bad about her husband, naturally my inclination is going to be like, my daughter's an angel. No guy is good enough for her, right? And she's telling me about him. Yeah, I knew he was a jerk. Where is I'm going to choke him out, right? <laughs> but that's a natural instinct that I have as a dad to want to be protective. But she may not be telling me the full side of the story. She may not be telling me about some of the selfish impulses that have led to the conflict. It always takes two. And it's easy to go and to triangulate, to get people riled up and be like, ugh, that husband of mine. Ugh, that wife of mine, it's easy to do that. She comes to them and they say, well, why should we help you find him if he's that terrible? Why would we help you? You need to beware of who you invite for counsel. They need to be godly and wise counselors. For those of you who are single, mom and dad should be a part of this engagement courtship process. If they're godly and they're wise, then I... I believe that you would be in conversation about them, about with them, about who you're pursuing or who's pursuing you. But when you're married, 
You need to be very careful about who you're inviting to come in to look inside of your relationship and keep seeking counsel. Oftentimes, you need to keep mom and dad out of it. It'll be hard for them to, to have your best interests in mind as a couple rather than just as an individual. Sometimes our best friends and our peers, our besties, they can have terrible counsel for us. Uh, uh, oftentimes in, in, in marriage counseling, when I'm meeting with couples and talking with them, I can hear, I can hear friends of theirs that I'm actually counseling behind what they're saying. This doesn't come, this is not coming from you or from the word of God. This sounds like it's coming from an outside source. Why? Because our natural inclination is to want to build a case against our spouse in a conflict. You need to be very careful who you invite into your relationship. Titus 2-3 through three makes this really clear about how this is supposed to work. It says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. This is how the household of God should function. Look, we have amazing premarital counseling couples, marriages that have been here for decades that are awesome and they're filled with wisdom. And if you are in a point in your marriage where you're just like, we're not doing well, don't just isolate out. Come and find wise counsel because there are many wise counselors right around you who have overcome conflict in their marriage and can help guide and shepherd you without taking either side, okay? Uh, the seventh tactic is to remember what brought you together. When they say, why are you telling us? Why should we help you? She just goes right down a list of talking about how amazing her husband is. She remembers everything that she loves about this dude. She describes him basically head to toe. Everything he is, I want. He's radiant. He's ruddy. He's distinguished. He's better than all the dudes. He's not just like any other lover. His head, his eyes, his, his, his body, his cheeks, everything about him. His arms are rods of gold. His legs, everything. She describes his physical appearance. She's like, what am I thinking? He's amazing. In conflict, you can forget what it is that brought you together, and you can see your spouse as your enemy instead of your teammate and your friend. And that's where she ends up landing at the end of this when she's talking about him, she says, listen, guys, you want to know why you should help me find him? She said, this is him. This is who he is. He's amazing. He's, he's, a, he's a man filled with character. He's godly. He's holy. He's amazing. And he's my friend. He is my friend. Look at verse 16. This is my beloved and this is my friend. If you want to work on your marriage, forget Forget just for a second about the conflicts and try and make friends again. Focus on friendship. And, and be your husband and your, and your bride's best friend. Guys, I'm going to give you a little tip here. All right, So it says that his lips are like lilies. They drip with liquid myrrh. It says his mouth is most sweet in Scripture. We read about how the law of God is sweet like honey. And here's what I'm going to tell you. We are called to love our wives sacrificially, okay? And we are called to love our wives selflessly. 
And Ephesians 5 gives us a model and a picture for what marriage is all about. Here's what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives with, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that, we might, that he might sanctify her, listen, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so here's the thing. Paul, in the very next verse, says that in the same way husbands are to treat their wives through nourishing her. And how do we do that? Through the same exact way that Christ washes his bride, us. How? With the washing of the water of the word. There have been times and seasons where Andrea has been telling me about being overwhelmed or stressed or whatever she's dealing with. And I'll be sitting there like a guy thinking, all right, I got just the tool for that. I'm going to fix that. So here's how you need to, and I'm start planning and strategizing about how she's supposed to fix all these problems that she's bringing to me because I'm a fixer and we're going to fix this. That's our impulse, right? But oftentimes as she's describing and explaining things to me, she's like, no, you're not understanding me. No, that's not, no. And I'm like, what? I'm I'm fixing everything. What are you talking about? (laughs) Done. Just do what I said. You know, it's like, no, dude. (laughs) Everything she's saying is going right over my head. And there are moments and there are times where I'll be like, shoot. I missed it. And there are moments and there are times when you simply need to stop trying to fix it and let the word of God be what fixes it. Be her defense by allowing God's word to be the piercing sword that it is and to actually spiritually cover her. There are times where I will literally just break up in the Bible and just be like, I'm going to just read over you and pray for you. I'm just going to read over you and pray for you. If the word of God is living and active and powerful, men, this needs to be one of the main weapons to defend our marriage. And when there's conflict, We can get pretty shy about opening up the word. And here's the thing. You don't need to like, all right, so here's what you need to do based on, just read it to her. Just read the word. And let the word actually cover her. Let the word be the anointing over her. Let it be the sweetness that comes from your lips. Like honey that saturates, allow it to actually be that which covers her in those seasons. Satan is going to hate that. And it might be the last thing you think about doing and the first thing that you don't want to do. It's because Satan hates your marriage. Satan hates you. He wants you to fail. He wants your marriage to fail. He wants to make a mockery of the cross. He wants to make a mockery of your faith and a mockery of Jesus. He knows his end and he wants to drag you into it. Misery loves company. Do not let him have any victory at all in the conflict in your marriage. Allow the word of God to saturate your marriage and be that which pulls you together. You want to overtake conflict and overcome conflict in your marriage. Remember what it is that brought you together and let the word of God consistently and continually bring you together. Number eight, we see it in the first couple of verses of chapter six. The others say, where is your beloved? He's so amazing. Wow, we're going to help you find him. And immediately afterwards, she says, my beloved has come to his garden. We know what that is at this point. He is coming to the garden. He is tending the garden. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They're making up. Tactic number eight, make up. You have no idea what a weapon sex is in marriage. It is a weapon. It is meant to defend your marriage. It's not only for our enjoyment, but it is something that will defeat the enemy. 
Here it says they're enjoying conjugals once again. That's what it says. You can laugh at that. It's okay. Permission. They're coming back together again. Here's the thing. Conflict is powerful because it has the ability, once it's overcome, to be reunifying and to strengthen your marriage like nothing else. You're no longer two. You're one. And when conflict threatens that oneness, you have an opportunity in all of these tactics to put oneness front and center again. Here's a Christ connection for us. When we think about how much she praises who her beloved is, and how much she, he actually means to her. We think about the description of her beloved, and we read of his beauty and his love for her, and in this too, we see the beauty and love of Christ that he has for his bride. See, the Song of Solomon isn't just about the horizontal plane. It's also about the vertical plane. It's both. In the greatest conflict that has ever been between God and mankind and our sin and our rebellion against him, Christ Jesus himself stepped in as the mediator, He took on our sin so that we would have peace with God rather than strife. We are no longer enemies. We are called friends of God because of Jesus. And in response to this, how could we not sing about him? How could we not praise who he is? And as as an application of this, that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to sing the praises of Jesus. Would you please bow in prayer with me? Father, we thank you for sending your son in Jesus. We thank you that you are truly the prince of peace who has come to bring us peace. Lord, that where the conflict existed and in our sin and rebellion against you, you came. You took on that conflict. You took on the wrath and the judgment so that we would be perfected completely in you. Jesus, I just pray for marriages, Lord, that are hurting, that are broken. Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness. And yet, Jesus, I ask that they would step into more in what you have for them. And that by the power of the Spirit, you would just break through the strongholds that exist in marriages that are failing and broken here in our our community, in our fellowship. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction. Lord, that you would bring comfort. Lord, that you would give hope knowing, Jesus, that because you came, we can have hope in you alone. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. And we all said...